0: The year of 2018 has been a big year for CBC. The Lord has been kind. It has been a year of what might be called establishment and growth. And those things are the Lord's doing. He gets the credit for that. He gets the glory and the praise for that. And I rejoice in God's providence that as we have been in this season of establishment and growth, early on in our church's life, that we have been in Galatians. I trust it is precisely God who has had us here over these last nine or ten months or so. I pray that this letter, the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, and that this sermon series will be culture affecting and culture shaping in our church for a long time. I sincerely mean that. I trust that Ron would agree with me. We are really imperfect people, and we have been rescued by a perfect Savior. That's not just something cute or catchy to put on the front of a bulletin or on a business card or on a website or any other kind of promotional material. It's true. It is, in one sense, an encapsulation of the mission of the church to herald the perfect Savior to people who need Him. And so to be clear, as we think about being imperfect people rescued by a perfect Savior, it needs to be stated that sin is not okay. Never is sin okay. And yet, at the same time, because of our inherent corruption, sin is normal. Sin is what we all do by nature and so what you need and what I need when we gather together like this is not simply to be told to do better now you, you do need to do better so do I but that message in and of itself cannot save anyone from the righteous judgment of God that we all deserve and that message do better in and of itself is powerless to change anyone Our doing better is something that is supernatural, that is accomplished by the Spirit of God in us as we run to the Son of God in faith. The church is not where you come or I come to get better. If that's why you're here, I'm still glad that you're here with us this morning. Don't misunderstand me. But if you have come here to simply get better, friends, I... Not 100% sure what I have or we have to offer you. The church exists not so that you can get better or improve your life. The church is where you come because you need something perfect. More specifically, you need the perfect one, and his name is Jesus. We are justified, declared righteous by God in him alone. And we live this Christian life in union with Him by faith and by the power of His Spirit. Jesus is, like full stop statement, Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe. To be with Him and behold His glory forever is the greatest good that anyone could ever know. Ever. So at the risk of sounding like ridiculously reductionistic, this church, CBC, is about Jesus. It's about Jesus and the people who need him and the people who know that we need him and who love him and want him forever. In Christ Alone is the sermon title. Not very original to me anyway. Galatians 6. 11 through 18 is the text. So let's look at it together now. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. It's always good to bring a Bible with you. If you didn't today, there's no reason to feel shame for that. We'll have the verses up on the screen uh, to assist you so that you're able to look at the text as we read it and consider it together. So before we go any further, I want to read God's Word for us, beginning in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 6. This is the Word of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. To which we would add our amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So as we consider these verses together this morning, I want us to do so under three headings. Under three headings. And I rarely pull off the three-point sermon for you. That's a very Baptist thing to do. But even more rare is that I pull off an alliterated three-point sermon for you. So you're welcome. Two gathering songs today. An alliterated sermon outlined today. Man. Heading number one is beware. Heading number one, beware. More specifically, that heading would be beware of the false teachers among you. Beware of the false teachers among you. This is the Apostle Paul to the Galatian Christians. We can start by putting our eyes on verse 11. You see there very clearly that Paul has written this letter himself with his own hand, rather than having it transcribed. He lets us know that in verse 11. If anything, this letter is perhaps more personal for Paul in that he wrote it with his own hand, but I don't think that we should understand anything terribly significant by verse 11. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 12, where we see here that Paul is going to reference the false teachers among the Galatian Christians in the Galatian churches. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now remember, as we've made our way through this letter, we've considered together many times the distortion of the gospel that existed in the Galatian churches. People were certainly encouraged, told to trust in Christ, to have faith in Him for their justification, for them to be declared righteous before God. But in addition to that, alongside that faith in Christ, things like circumcision, the observance of days and feasts and things like that, and other matters of keeping the law were, were put next to Christ as part of what it meant to be justified before God, as necessary in order to be justified before God. So these false teachers have been pushing these matters of the law, and in particular, circumcision amongst the Galatian Christians who would have been almost exclusively Gentile. In other words, they would not have been circumcised at birth like their Jewish friends would have been. Paul is concluding his letter now with a word of warning regarding these false teachers. Shouldn't surprise us, right? He's kind of making a final point to say, look, watch out for this. Watch out for these things that I've been writing about. You should not believe or trust in these men. You should be on guard. The false teachers are pushing circumcision on the Galatians for two reasons, Paul shows us in verse 12. The first reason they are pushing circumcision on the Galatians is that they might make a good showing in the flesh. You see that. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So in order to look good in an earthly, this life kind of way, these false teachers are encouraging the Galatian believers, to be circumcised in order to be declared righteous alongside their faith in Jesus. Those who were, as we considered earlier on in the letter, and we don't, have, we don't have time to consider all these things in detail now, I trust that you've either heard those sermons or can listen to them online now. Those who were of what would have been called the circumcision party would have upheld circumcision as necessary for justification. Those referred to as Judaizers would have done the same, along with upholding other aspects of the Mosaic Law, as necessary for justification. So to require circumcision of the Gentile Galatian Christians would have been a good look in the eyes of many, particularly those in Jerusalem at the time. Particularly those of a Jewish heritage would have looked positively on the fact that these teachers were forcing these Gentile Christians to be circumcised. Second reason that these false teachers are pressing the issue of circumcision, Paul tells us as well, second part of verse 12, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they are pressing circumcision in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So this is the real rub. This is the real issue while upholding circumcision as necessary would have been a good look in the eyes of many over here preaching justification completely by faith in Jesus invited persecution wholesale invited persecution from Jews and Gentiles alike we've considered this together if Paul was trying to preach a message that pleased men he would have preached a different message it's not as though Jews were the only ones offended by the heralding of justification by faith in Christ alone apart from works of the law, it is not as though the Gentiles were any more fond of hearing that message. So to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, is to invite upon yourself persecution of all kinds. And this, as we've considered together as well, is because of the offense of the gospel. For many, especially Exhibit A, the circumcision party or the the Judaizing people from Jerusalem or just Judaizing believers in general, to many, the gospel seems incongruous to the teaching of Old Testament scripture. Say that again. To many, the gospel message of justification before God through faith in Christ alone apart from any work you do seems incongruous, seems to not fit with the Old Testament Scripture. Surely, at least in some measure, circumcision and works of the law are necessary for righteousness. Surely, that's the rub. This perspective, as we've also considered throughout our time in Galatians is indicative of a misunderstanding of the place of God's law within his covenant of redemption the law as we have thought about together was never intended to be kept for righteousness the law was never intended to be kept for any measure of merit before God Paul has made that point very well very clearly in this letter That It is God's promise that stood long before the law was given. The law was given for many good ends. The first of which is to show us our sin and drive us to the Savior. The second of which is to restrain human wickedness. The third, for the Christian, is that the law is our perfect guide for living. It tells us how to live. Not to be kept for merit, but to be obeyed for the glory of God and our good. The main point of the law, in other words, this again, at the risk of sounding reductionistic, but it isn't. It's true. The point of the law, the main point of the law was and is Jesus Christ. He would come to fulfill all righteousness in the place of his people. He's clear about that in his ministry. I wonder if you've thought before about his baptism before John the Baptist, when He's going to be baptized at the start of his earthly ministry. And John is kind of wigged out about the idea of baptizing Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is seeing this by the Holy Spirit. He sees who this man is. He knows that he's not fit to unstrap his sandals, let alone baptize this man. What does Jesus say? He says, this needs to be done because I have come to fulfill all righteousness. So that all righteousness might be fulfilled. This needs to be done. Jesus did not need to be baptized for his sin. He did it in the place of his people. Just like every other work he ever did. Just like he kept every single aspect of God's law. At the deed level certainly, outwardly. But even more so, at the thought level and the heart level. Which none of us are able to do. He did it perfectly. So in that sense, the main point of the law was to point to the one who would come and fulfill the law. In addition, Christ would come, the Messiah would come to pay the penalty that the law requires of the people of God. God had determined in eternity past to make a people for himself who would love him, and know him, and worship him, and enjoy him forever. And at the same time, God does not dwell with sin, And every human being, beginning with Adam and Eve, is a sinner. It's a serious problem. God is not only gracious and merciful and loving, He is just and holy and righteous. And judgment had to be administered. And so the law nails us and shows us our sin, and there is a horrific penalty to be paid for breaking the law. Death, condemnation, judgment, eternally. Christ took the penalty of the law upon himself in the place of his people. So the law pointed us to that, points us to that work of Christ. And Jesus would come to set his people free from bondage to sin and bondage to death. There is nothing in the world that will demonstrate your bondage to sin and my bondage to sin like the perfect holy law of God. And Jesus came to set us free from bondage to sin and to death. Jesus was and is offensive to people. Jesus was and is offensive to to Jews. It's true. And Jesus was and has been offensive to all kinds of people. Because the gospel message, the message of salvation in Christ, says to everyone that you are not okay. Okay says to everyone that you are a sinner, that you are fundamentally corrupt, and therefore you do wicked things. And because of not only your actions, but because of your inherent guilt and corruption, you have no shot of being able to stand in your own merit before God at the end of history. There is a perfect judge of the universe, and justice will be administered perfectly. And nobody has any hope of that going well. No one. And what's more is that you, in and of yourself, can do absolutely nothing about your guilt. You cannot make it right. You can't atone for it. You can't take it away. You cannot accomplish the righteousness that God requires. You cannot accomplish what you most desperately need by doing well enough. You can't. This is the bad news before the good news, right? The good news is not good news unless we understand how bad the bad news is. Nobody likes the bad news. We think highly of ourselves naturally. We don't like to be told that we, in and of ourselves, in our own strength and our own merit, are unworthy. It's offensive. The gospel tells us that we are utterly and completely dependent upon another to justify us. We are completely and utterly dependent upon another to accomplish righteousness in our place and take the punishment we deserve. This is the furthest thing from pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of religion. This is the furthest thing from clean up your life and it will go well for you kind of religion. This is a gracious, substitutionary work of God in your place kind of religion that you never deserved, that you never could accomplish. And He did it for you and has made you new in His Son. We're told that what we must do is turn away from ourselves. We must turn away from our own sin, the sin that we so often just love, the sin that we, ah, it's so hard to shake. We're to turn away from that and deny that And we are also to turn away from even our own notions of our own goodness. We are to turn away from not only our own sin, in other words, but also our own righteousness and trust in Christ alone. And that message offends everyone naturally. Apart from a work of the Spirit of God, no one would ever believe it. No one would ever love it. No one would ever have eyes to see it if it were not for the Spirit of God making that possible within the heart and the mind of a human being. Let's put our eyes on verse 13. So these false teachers wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. They wanted to avoid the persecution that would come along with the preaching of the cross of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So to further highlight the fact that these false teachers were trying to avoid persecution and make that good showing in the flesh, Paul points out that even they do not keep the law. The false teachers, in one sense, were insincere in their ministry. They were heaping upon others burdens that they could not and would not keep themselves. Jesus even talks about this in his earthly ministry with the Jewish leadership of his day that you heap upon people burdens that you yourselves don't intend to lift a finger to bear. So that's going on. To put this another way, the false teachers and others who would have required circumcision did keep the law, at least aim to keep the law outwardly. But to keep the law outwardly, as we've considered so many times, is not to keep the law at all. Again, that is so much of the point of Matthew chapter 5, that first part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount that's recorded for us by the Gospel writer, that you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say unto you, if you have lusted in your heart after someone, you are guilty of breaking the law. Yes, you might have kept it externally, indeed, you haven't slept with someone who's not your spouse, but you are a lawbreaker at the heart level. You've heard it said, do not murder And while you might not have killed someone, if you have been angry in your heart towards your brother or your sister, you're guilty of breaking the law. Jesus is preaching the law as it was always meant to be applied and understood. So to keep the law outwardly is to not keep the law at all. And that's essentially what Paul is making the point of here in verse 13. These false teachers were at the heart of it, seeking to be able to boast in the fact that the Galatian Christians were circumcised. Boast in their flesh, in some earthly thing. This circumcision according to the flesh would be their boast, to boast in the fact that they were enforcing conformity to the written code. So that concludes our heading number one: of beware of false teachers among you. Don't trust them. This is their objective. They seek to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to be able to boast about what you have done in the flesh, and they are ultimately seeking to avoid the persecution that comes with preaching the cross of Christ. Which moves us now to our second heading. First, beware. Second heading, boast. Boast. Or more specifically, boast in Christ alone. Boast in Christ alone. Let's put our eyes on verse 14. Paul says, but far be it from me, like God forbid, like this is a strong expression. God forbid that I would ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very clear. I'm only going to boast in Christ and what he accomplished. I'm going to boast in him and his work. Through the cross of Christ, Paul says in the second half of the verse, he says that the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. Here, Paul is pointing to the reality of being a new creation in Christ. That's where he's going in verse 15. He's going to start talking about that new creation piece. The things of the world and even his own works in the world that he used to value, he counts as dead. He counts as nothing compared to being found in Christ. Think Philippians 3, 7 and following. All of these things, like the righteousness that I had, according to the flesh, all of the things of the world. Anything good that I thought I had, I now consider it as rubbish. It's worth nothing to me. It's dead to me. It is absolutely worthless and useless and nothing compared to being found in Christ and compared to having a righteousness that isn't my own that comes by faith. And then he also says that not only... Has the world been crucified to me? that is dead to me, but also out of the world. This is essentially Paul' saying that he might be in the world, but he's no longer of the world. This is like the language of Jesus in the high priestly prayer. He's not asking that God would take his people out of the world, but that he, the Father would be with them and protect them and watch over them. We talk about this regularly. We are in the world, but not of it. Our citizenship ultimately lies elsewhere. So in that sense, the world not only has been crucified to us and that those things are no longer of value to us, but also us to the world in that ultimately our citizenship is elsewhere and in that we are no longer of the world, though we still live in it. Paul knows that now his identity is in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's consider for just a moment what it would look like to boast in nothing other than Jesus and his work. What would it look like, at least in part, to boast in nothing other than Christ and his work? Do you realize, like I do, I'm sure, that to boast in something certainly means that you would, in one, one sense, kind of brag or take pride in that thing? To boast in it, I take pride in this? But that's not all that boasting would mean. This word that's used here, and even in our English language, you get this sense as well, to boast in something is also to glory in something. To find glory in in the thing. It's also to place your confidence in the thing. I'm boasting in something that I in some way am putting confidence in. If I'm boasting in something, I'm also rejoicing in it too. So to boast would mean to take pride in, to glory in, to place my confidence in, to rejoice in the thing boasted about. So friends, as we consider not boasting in anything other than Christ, let's take that seriously. Let us not boast. Let us not hope in, trust in. Let us not take pride in. Let us not glory in. Let us not rejoice in. Anything other than Christ, His person and His work in our place. So, in other words, don't certainly boast or take pride in things of the world. Now, is it wrong to enjoy things of the world? Absolutely not. God has made a wonderful world and He's given us many good gifts to enjoy. It's good to enjoy the things that God has given underneath the authority of God's Word. As long as we're not violating Scripture... It is good to enjoy the things God gives. He is a good giver who gives good gifts. But we should never boast in, trust in, glory in the things of this earth. Because ultimately we know that those things are passing. That those things must ultimately be redeemed like us. They are fleeting. We also, though, friends, ought not to ever boast or place our confidence in our own righteousness or our own obedience. Does this mean that we shouldn't strive after obedience? Absolutely not. Does this mean that we shouldn't pray for increased amounts of righteousness in our lives? Absolutely not. Does this mean that we should not work and encourage and plead with one another so that we might obey God's Word more? Absolutely not. What it means is that we ought never to place our confidence In our obedience, we ought never to place our confidence in our growth or our sanctification or our maturation. We should not place our confidence in these things, even if this is where it gets really offensive. We ought never to place our confidence in these things, even if they are the work of the Holy Spirit. Should we, on the one hand, pursue them, strive for them, pray for them? Yes. Should we be encouraged by them? Yes. But should we ever trust in them, glory in them, boast in them? No way. The work of God's Spirit in us to transform us, to change us, to sanctify us, to mature us, to grow us is awesome. And we ought to be encouraged by it. We ought to point that out to each other. We ought to tell one another regularly, praise God for how you're growing in this way or this way, or on the other hand, challenge one another in love and say, hey, Brother, sister, I'm concerned here. And we ought to know and realize that any growth, any maturation, any sanctification is the work of God's Spirit in and through us. We didn't do it. God accomplished it. God willed and worked in us in order that we might will and work to His good pleasure. Amen. So there are all kinds of good things to be considered in our growth and sanctification. And they ought never to be, that is, growth and sanctification, trusted in. So in other words, don't trust in anything other than Jesus. Don't boast in anything other than Jesus Christ, His person, His work. I don't care how good of a thing it is. We're not just talking about not boasting in bad stuff. Don't boast in good stuff. Boast in Christ alone. And friend, I promise you that if you give yourself to the exercise, the joyful exercise, will it feel like joy all the time? No. But is it a joyful exercise? You better believe it is. If you give yourself to the exercise of thinking about Jesus, of meditating on Christ, of searching the scriptures to see Him, You will never run out of things to boast about, ever. Read the book of Hebrews sometime. What's the point of that book? The point of that book is how Jesus is greater than everything and about how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was in the Old Testament. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses through whom the law came, the great prophet. He's greater than Aaron, the one through whom the priesthood was established. The priesthood had to continually make sacrifices. Even the high priest could only go into the presence of God once a year. But Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all, and it's over. And He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He's coming back for His people. There are plenty of things to brag about Him on, or brag on Him about. That was terrible English, forgive me. Read John chapter 1. The eternal Word made flesh. He was with God in the beginning. And He was God in the beginning. Through Him, everything was made that was made. In other words, He wasn't in the made category. He's God. And He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Holy smokes. And then He also showed us the glory of God. Glory as the only Son from the Father. I'm mindful even right now of of my friend, a guy I used to work with who once had an album, I think, and certainly a song called Brag on My Lord, Christian hip-hop guy. Brag on Him. It's a good thing to do. Boast in Him. He's worthy. We read a little book at my house and my kids as well, just kind of thinking about bragging about Jesus some more with you. There's a good book by Kevin DeYoung that he writes for children, The Greatest Story. Right, And in that book, he outlines the story of the Bible in like 10 chapters. Well, in the first chapter, you read obviously about creation and all those things. And then early on in the book as well, you learn about the snake, the serpent, the evil one who came to tempt Adam and Eve, who came to tempt our first parents. Of course, our first parents fell. But then we also learn about the one who would come to crush the snake, the snake crusher, as he's called in the book. So we talk at, at the crib about Jesus coming to crush the snake. He did. And that's no small thing. That is him coming to crush the head of the evil one, the one who is powerful, the one who seeks to devour God's people. Jesus came to crush him. Jesus came to set us free from the great accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. There is a lot about Jesus to brag on. He is the suffering servant of God the one through whom many would be accounted righteous, the one who would bear the iniquities and the sin of his people so that his people might be saved. He is the second and greater Adam. He never failed at anything ever. That's a mind blower. I fail at stuff all the time. So do you. He never did. He doesn't know what failure is. Praise be to his name. He, as we've already talked about, fulfilled all righteousness. He accomplished the law. He fulfilled the covenant of works that God made with Adam, that Adam failed to do. Christ succeeded in fulfilling it. He made perfect atonement. He prays for us. He prays for his people as evidenced in John 17. And he lives forever to make intercession for his own, Hebrews 7.25. Praise be to Jesus. Place your confidence in him and rejoice in Him alone. Let's put our eyes on verse 15. Paul then goes on with his argument. He grounds what he said in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast anything apart from the cross of Christ Jesus, because neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. You could insert there any work of the law or not. Counts for nothing, but only a new creation. So circumcision doesn't count for anything, but uncircumcision also does not count for anything. So you think you're better because you weren't circumcised, because you know the gospel? No way! Uncircumcision does not make you better. Also included in that thought could be the circumcision, namely the Jewish people, the uncircumcision, namely the Gentile people. Those things don't matter. God has always intended to save a people from every tribe and language and nation that would be included in that statement. Though I think Paul's point is the other. Circumcision itself, works of the law themselves. They don't count for anything in terms of righteousness. Only a new creation counts, Paul says. By that, what does he mean? He means the new birth. He means the new birth, regeneration, being born again by the Holy Spirit. The new birth, as we've considered, especially from chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 of of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we consider this at length, about how the new birth is what marks out the people of God in the new covenant. At one point in time, in the old covenant, circumcision was the marker. It was the way that God's people were marked off from the nations. But then, in the new covenant reality, as the Messiah has come the marker has now become something different. It's become this new birth thing. Circumcision in the Old Covenant was the outward sign given to God's people. But even then, as we read earlier today, Jeremiah chapter 9, you'll hear throughout the Old Testament this language of circumcision of the heart. You're not to be circumcised outwardly in the flesh only. The issue with God In terms of the true Israel, was that they were circumcised of heart. So even then, the outward sign of circumcision was pointing to something inward that was greater than the outward sign itself. God promised that He would circumcise the hearts of His children, He promises that in Deuteronomy 30 and elsewhere. And we would understand that to find its fulfillment in the new birth. So with the coming of Messiah and the inauguration excuse me of the new covenant, entrance into the people of God is now marked off by being born again through the Spirit of God in Christ by faith. So circumcision, as I already said, was already a pointer to circumcision of the heart. And ultimately, circumcision pointed to these new covenant realities of the new birth. The circumcision of the heart and being marked off that way. And there is still an outward sign, just to be clear. There is an outward sign that is given to the covenant people still. It's called baptism. It's given to all of those who experience the new covenant reality of the new birth. In the law, this should be very clear to you as we've made our way through Galatians. In the law, meaning, and by that we could even expand that, the law and the prophets, the writings, everything. There were many pointers to Christ and many shadows of the new covenant. And as a theologian greater than me has said, the truth of the gospel swallows up and brings to naught all the shadows of the law. The gospel swallows up and brings to naught all the shadows of the law. To put this another way, friends, it is only being born again that matters paraphrase Paul. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. It is only being born again that matters, as it pertains to being a part of the people of God. And we know, let's keep piling on some things here, if it's only being born again that matters, well, how does that happen? The new birth, we know, comes only by the Holy Spirit. He does that work in you. Well, how does the Holy Spirit come to do that Ultimately, yes, the sovereign grace of God, but the Holy Spirit comes through Christ. Paul is essentially asking the question in verse 15, Why would I boast in something, namely like circumcision or uncircumcision, why would I boast in something that has no value? Why would I ever boast in something that has no value or no merit before God? The only thing I could ever boast in is the work of Jesus Christ and the fact that in Him... God has caused me to be born again by the Holy Spirit. If I'm going to boast, I can boast in that. And that's it. And that's a work that God has done and not me. In verse 16, he moves on and tells us that as for all who walk by this rule, this rule being the rule of justification completely by faith in Jesus apart from works, he says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So Paul blesses all those who walk by that rule, the gospel rule, both the preachers and teachers and the people, peace and mercy beyond them. And along with that, in that blessing, he includes the Israel of God. By this he means whom? The Israel of God. He means the children of promise. He means God's elect ones. He means the true Israel. He means the children of Abraham by faith. And then in verse 17, as you put your eyes there, Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul has endured persecution. He's endured punishment for preaching the gospel, for heralding this good news of justification by faith in Jesus apart from works. He bears those marks on his body, the beatings, the scars, the Various things that he has endured. And his hope is that now that he has made his argument, clearly from redemptive history, that he would be troubled no more over the gospel. I hope, let no one from now on trouble me. I have endured many things already. Hopefully the argument is sufficient. I pray that you think so. Which moves us now to our third and final heading, friends. The final B, of the morning. The first, beware. The second, boast. The third, benediction. The first, boast. Second, or excuse me, first, beware. Second, boast. Third, heading. Benediction. Benediction, of course, you know, means good word. Good word. It's often a word of blessing that's given at the end of a talk or at the end of a letter. The end of a service, like we'll do today. Paul says here in verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. May it be so. Just as a note, Paul, in all of his letters, all 13 of them included in the New Testament, Paul gives grace as a benediction in every single one. Every one. That word, grace to you, is included in every letter he writes. It's not insignificant. And this particular structure, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, is written specifically like this. Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Philemon. He writes exactly those words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Given that he did this so consistently, I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that Paul understands that we need very much to know of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave you with this, brothers. I'm going to leave you with this, sisters. I'm going to leave you with this, friends. I'm going to leave you with grace from God. I'm going to leave you with the grace of God found in Jesus Christ because Paul knows that's the good word that his readers and his hearers need. And this is appropriate, that he would leave them with that because his good word matches the good news that he's been defending. The good word of grace at the end of the letter matches the good news of extraordinary grace that he has been defending throughout the letter to the Galatians. So I want us to conclude very briefly our sermon today, but this series as a whole, by thinking together just a few minutes, about what the good news is. We've got the good word from Paul, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with you. What's the good news? Well, the end of the good news, the the goal of the good news, the goal of the gospel is the new heavens and the new earth. God will be our God. We will be his people. We will dwell with him in righteousness forever. We will worship him and enjoy him forever. We will behold the glory of Jesus forever. Everything will be right. Think about that for a moment. Everything will be right. Everything will be good. It will be wonderful to live with God. That's the end. That's the goal of the good news. The good news is the means through which that goal is accomplished. So what is the good news itself? If you had to sum it up in a word, it might be redemption. Redemption, more specifically, accomplished by Jesus. It is right to say in that sense, friends, that Jesus is the gospel. I stand by that statement. I'd stake my ministry on it. Jesus is the gospel. His person, His work in the place of His people. That's the good news. The gospel is news about something just to further clarify our thinking here. The gospel is news about something that has been accomplished. The good news is about something that is really finished. It's not about something that we need to accomplish or that we need to finish. It is news to be heralded. The gospel, the person and the work of Jesus, is something to be trusted. The person and work of Jesus, aka the gospel, is something to be rested in. It's something to be believed. It's something to abide in, not something that needs to be done. Part of the offense of the gospel is the fact that there's nothing left to do when it comes to the good news piece. Now, there's all kinds of stuff to do that flows out of the gospel, but those things that we do are not the gospel. The good news, if I was going to even continue to like reduce this down and clarify it for us, the good news is that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is counted to us the moment we trust in him. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is counted to us the moment we believe and trust in Him. So the righteousness that's counted to us is not ours. No way. The righteousness that is counted to us belongs to Jesus. It's His. It is His. The righteousness through which we are declared just before God is not in us. It is outside of us. Remember, because it's Christ's. It's His righteousness. So, when we put our trust in Jesus, He counts His righteousness to us. So, His righteousness that's His, that He owns, that He accomplished, is then taken and credited to you. It still isn't yours. It's still His and always will be. And then here's the thing. At that moment of trusting Christ, all the righteousness that you will ever need or that I will ever need in order to make it to heaven, it's ours at that moment. That's remarkable. All the righteousness that we will ever need, we will have. We have it in the moment that we trust in Christ. That is good news. And then, friends, we live in and under that good news all the time. We work in and under and from that good news all the time. We work from our salvation, not for it, right? Everything we do, we do in Christ. We live and Work and pray and strive and preach and correct and encourage and worship and discipline in Christ, in the gospel. We find our hope and our righteousness and our joy in Christ alone to the glory of God the Father. And I referenced this in the introduction. You have a bulletin like I do. Covenants, name of the first part of the name of our church, imperfect people, perfect Savior. The stuff that we've been considering this morning is why that is not about cuteness, that slogan is not about cleverness, it's not about catchiness, something to just put on a piece of paper. We really are imperfect people and we really have a perfect Savior. Friends, let's go now in prayer to the one who has saved us.